0: Well anyway, I'm, uh, I'm glad, thrilled actually to be back, uh, with no snow. That's a good thing. I like snow, but I'm really glad it's not snowing so that we can be together, uh, and worship Christ this morning. Well if you weren't here over Christmas break, uh, we did finally finish that dating series. Uh, I, I was kind of joking with some of you guys, it was kind of like dryer lint that was stuck to me. I was trying to get it off, uh, get rid of it. It, it bled over into the, into winter break. Uh, but we did, we finished it up, and uh, it was helpful. If you missed the, any of those kind of tail end uh, messages, because you weren't here, they're all on our website on the Boundless page. Um, and then last time we were together, Rich actually taught on the topic of contentment. So that's also online, and it was incredibly helpful to me, and I talked to several of you um, who all were kind of saying the same thing, uh, convicting, helpful to reorient, um, so I just encourage you, if, if you have time this week, just to take a look at that on the on the church website there. It's under our Boundless page, uh, under the TBC website. Well, today we're going to resume our study uh, through the book of Acts. And we'll be in Acts 15, so you can go ahead and, and turn there in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And we've been in this book since the fall of 2017. The fall of 2017. So that's three semesters we, we've, we've worked through this book. We're beginning our fourth today. And if you haven't been with us, or if you just need a refresher, Acts is all about how God continued to fulfill His mission to get the gospel first to Israel and then to the nations of the world. So really, we could boil it down. Acts is all about God's commitment to fulfill His mission to get his gospel to Israel first, and then to the nations of the world. The risen Christ tasked his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, according to Acts 1.8. They were to be witnesses there first, then in Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And so over these last three semesters, we've watched Christ's word triumph in these areas. First, it fills Jerusalem uh, with the teaching then it spills over into Judea and Samaria, creating converts from among the Jews and, and half Jews, if you will, in Samaria. And then in, in chapter ten, it breaks out into the nations, with first with Cornelius, and then it just it kind of doesn't look back after that. And it, it's all unfolding pretty much according to plan, as as we would expect. But just because it's unfolding, it doesn't mean that the mission has been without its threats. Again and again, we see that the enemies of Jesus oppose him. And they oppose the spread of the gospel. They try to stop it. But again and again, we see that God overrides these threats. And more than just overriding them, he often uses them to actually promote his mission. See the difference? He uses them to to fuel it, promote it. And we've seen this in at least two major ways in our study up to this point. And we're going to see it again today. So we've seen how God overrides threats to, to actually fulfill His mission. First, the, really the fundamental way that we've seen this is in, is in the crucifixion of Jesus. So God sent Jesus, as the new David, to rescue His people Israel, and ultimately Gentiles after that but his people, Israel, from their sins, and to restore the Davidic kingdom back to Israel and all of the earth, and and his reign over all the earth forever. That was, and it still is, the mission. Yet, when Jesus came as king, just to Israel, and then, more specifically, into the city of Jerusalem, toward the end of the book of Luke, the people of Israel kill him. It's sort of, on the one hand, at first glance, it's the exact opposite of what we think should happen when God sends his Davidic king back to Israel. Israel mutinied and murdered the king that would restore her, was sent to restore her. And so just kind of off the, just right off the top, that's a major threat to the plan. At least, humanly speaking. But instead of stopping the plan when they killed Jesus, they actually furthered it. The death of Jesus is precisely what had to happen according to Scripture. His death is what actually inaugurated the new covenant that we participate in. It's what actually enables God to forgive the sins of his people. It enables God to give his people new hearts and to to open freely to them the door of the kingdom. So the crucifixion of Jesus is a major threat. At least, humanly speaking, to God's plan in sending His Son, but yet God ordains that threat. He, he ordains it and then actually uses it, hijacks it, ordains it, is probably a better word, to actually further and fulfill His plan. One major example. Another major example that we've seen. After the resurrection, Jesus restores the twelve apostles, and then He tasks them with being His witnesses, like we saw in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Their goal is to see Israel repent. It's pretty clear. And she's to repent so that she can be restored and be used as a light for salvation to the Gentile nations. Many of the Jews do repent and believe, but many don't. Instead of repenting, they actually reject Jesus again as they reject His apostles. And instead of becoming a light, they actually try to snuff out the light Through persecution. This is another major threat to the plan. Yet God uses this persecution to actually strengthen and purify the church. We saw that over and over again last semester. He even uses his unbelieving people, Israel, to chase the disciples out of Jerusalem, and then later from city to city, causing the gospel to continue to spread to the ends of the earth. I used this illustration last semester, but it's like the fire that's burning kind of out in your yard and you have a rake and you're, and it's kind of getting outside the bounds and you're, and you're trying to stamp out the fire, but all you're doing is spreading the embers. That's essentially what, what the persecution was doing to the church. It was spreading the embers of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it was through the hardening of, of rebellious Israel. And so we can summarize it like this. God is in the business of using the very things which threaten to stop his mission To actually work to further it. So when we sang about Jesus being unstoppable and that everybody's going to bow to him, that means he's sovereign. And that he's the Lord of all creation and all things are under his control. And this theme comes again and again to us in the book of Acts, and it strengthens us in the midst of difficulty when life's not going the way we think it should go, even when we seem at times defeated in our own sin. It's all threats to the mission, right? We have this vision of Jesus who is sovereign in the heavens. He's doing as he pleases. And he's going to actually be able to work all things for our good, for our conformity to Christ, and ultimately for his glory in the world. It's a huge sweeping vision of God in the book of Acts. But today in Acts 15, we're going to see the same theme play out yet again. Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first successful missionary journey to the Gentiles. And though the persecution was really intense, uh, it got so bad, Paul was left for dead, they thought, uh, outside the city of Derby. The persecution was intense, but God saw to it that many Gentiles did believe the gospel. Jews, too, in those cities. And that the churches were planted... Um, just like he had intended. Look in, look in chapter 14 at the end here in verse 27, let to get our bearings for the context. Paul and Barnabas are returning back to their, their sending church of Antioch, and it says in verse 27, When they arrived there and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. So they're back in Antioch, God's opened a door of faith, There's a thriving Gentile mission happening through the ministry of two converted Jews and their team, um, Paul and Barnabas. And it's in the midst of this flourishing ministry in Antioch that the, the threat arises. And in some ways, this threat to the mission is the most subtle and dangerous to date. Because it comes, it rises up, it kind of grows up from within the church itself. We're going to watch as as Paul's very gospel, the message he is preaching, is challenged. Not by unbelievers, but by members of the Jerusalem church, the mother church. The challenge causes confusion in Antioch, and even the leaders in Jerusalem, uh, they heavily debate the issue. And as unsettling as it is for us, God's not unsettled. We're going to watch him our sovereign God sort of quietly used this threat against the gospel to actually crystallize it and confirm it so that it can continue to resound among the nations with more unity for the glory of Christ. And so we're going to see again that God's in the business of using the very things which threaten to stop his mission to actually work to further it and fulfill it. So uh, we're going to be dealing with it. We're calling this message the Jerusalem Council Part 1 because we'll be in it for a few weeks. And the Jerusalem Council is just what, what, just guys that are working through this text have have called this, this council that happens in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And if you want a main idea or sort of a theme of this, of this text, we could say it like this. Paul's gospel is seriously challenged, yet it's vindicated by the church in Jerusalem at this council. And it results in greater clarity and unity uh, in the churches, and we 're going to see that what happens, what unfolds here has major implications for our lives today. And the story really falls into to two halves paul's gospel is first challenged, like we said in the in the theme, and it, then it 's vindicated. So those are kind of our two halves it's challenged and then it's vindicated through this Jerusalem council. and so let 's look at this first uh, this first half of the story paul 's gospel is challenged. The serious challenge first surfaces in the city of Antioch. And then again, listen for, listen for similarities, it resurfaces in Jerusalem. So first in Antioch, then in Jerusalem. Look in, look in verse 1. But some men, in the midst of a thriving mission in Antioch, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that's not what Paul is teaching. Unless you were circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, we'll talk about this you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them that means it was a big debate. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, the Mother church, to the apostles and the elders, about this question. So this is serious. So, being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, places outside of Israel, Okay, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And notice what this this does. It brings great joy to all the brothers. So, Paul and Barnabas are clearly well-received outside of conservative Israel and and the gospel they preach. It's, It's in Judea, and in particular in Jerusalem... That these things are, are swirling here. So when they came to Jerusalem, verse 4, they are welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. That's uh, pretty comprehensive. And they declared all that God had done with them. But now notice another interruption. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is a serious challenge in the mother church, okay? Now notice, the apostles and the elders, they just immediately rebuke it? Is that what this says? No, look in verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter. Look in verse 7. After there had been much debate, this, things are swirling around in Jerusalem and it's a threat to the purity of the gospel. This is one of the most, I think, probably the most major threats in the, in the book of Acts to date. Now, just, let's unpack this first part just quickly here. You might be wondering why, why did this teaching pose such a threat to the church? Like, of course it seems like clearly adding works to the gospel. Uh, they were trying to, to add circumcision as a necessity and making them submit to the Mosaic law. Uh, isn't that pretty clear? Well, just a few observations. Notice that first they were from the Jerusalem church. We find that out later in the, the chapter. Uh, but it says in the beginning they're from Judea. And then Paul and Barnabas are actually sent back to this church of Jerusalem because they know it's the mother church and the, the, the teaching, at least we could kind of infer, that they're claiming the backing of the, of the Jerusalem church as they're coming in and teaching the brothers. And it's pretty clear that they're Christians. I don't think they would have been, had a hearing if they weren't. Um, in fact, the unbelieving Jews are always presented as like being as persecuting uh, the church there. So, I think it's pretty clear that they're believers. And so, this makes what they're saying an even larger issue, and more subtly persuasive. So, what's the deal? What are they saying? They're essentially teaching that Gentiles can't be saved as Gentiles. Simply by faith in Jesus. They would say, no, no, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you, something else has to happen here. Since they are unclean Gentiles, i.e. not part of Israel, they're unclean, they must become part of cleansed Israel, and they do that through circumcision and a willing submission to the Mosaic Law. At least, that's how they did it in the old days, under Judaism. And if they aren't willing to become part of Israel in this way, they will remain unclean, and so they won't be able to experience salvation in Christ. That was the argument. In other words, according to these guys, salvation is not by faith alone. For Gentiles, it's by faith plus incorporation into Israel. And so, do you see now how it's a, a little more nuanced and, and subtle? The apostles needed to think this through. So Luke tells us that they gathered together to consider what the pharisaical believers were saying in verse 6. And what I think is fascinating and, and kind of unnerving is uh, is how there was such a debate about this issue, um, even within the apostles and elders themselves in verse 7a, at uh, the beginning of, of verse 7 there. But thankfully for us, Luke transitions as quickly to a resolution. Uh, and that brings us to the really the second half of our story. And we'll call this Paul's gospel uh, is vindicated. Paul's gospel is vindicated. His gospel, the true gospel, is, is sort of confirmed, vindicated in these next few verses by the two most influential leaders um, in the Jerusalem church. Initially, it's it's by Peter. So I just kind of want to unfold this for you so you can see. We're going to draw out some implications, but I want want you to see how this is working. First, Peter really confirms uh, what Paul has said here. And he he speaks up, and what he says actually silences the debate. So look in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. How did He do that? Well, By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Implied alone. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, or in other words, but we believe in order that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So essentially they're saying, we believe so that we will be saved through grace, just as they will be saved. And notice what happens as a result of his speech. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So before Paul and Barnabas were interrupted by this Pharisaical believers in the church, great debate ensued. Peter speaks up, debate over. Okay? Love that. Uh, and I love what he says here he really vindicates what Paul and Barnabas had been doing, particularly the gospel that they were preaching. And Peter starts his speech by reminding the church of what God did in what he says is the early days. So what's he talking about? He's talking about when God first led him to to Gentile Cornelius back in uh, Acts chapter 10. Luke spends two chapters on the conversion of Cornelius. One story. It's really important to him. And obviously, it's because it's central to this, this text here. Peter's essentially saying, okay, guys, you remember, remember this, okay? God made a choice back then to have the Gentiles hear the gospel and to believe, right? And in other words, the Gentile inclusion was God's own choice, not Peter's or anybody else's. This choice to include Gentiles came from God. That's encouraging, because most of us are Gentiles, right? We're not eking our way into this covenant. This is God's choice. I'm going to work out some implications in just a minute. But how could we know that God chose them and cleansed them as Gentiles? Well, Peter says in verse 8, God himself demonstrated this choice by giving them the same Holy Spirit. Just like he did to the Jews at Pentecost, and when, when this happened back in chapter 10, all the Jewish believers who were present, Luke actually calls them the circumcised, <laughs> they, the, all of those guys who were present, the Jewish believers, were amazed that God poured out His Holy Spirit, keyword holy, on the unclean Gentiles only by faith. And so Peter says that, that this shows that God had cleansed their hearts by faith and apart from circumcision. Circumcision wasn't even a factor here, nor becoming Israelites. They were cleansed as Gentiles. And a cleansed heart leads to cleansing everywhere else. The heart is the most fundamental area of a human being. And so if a heart is cleansed, everything else is cleansed. That's the argument. So the Gentiles are clean as Gentiles, without being circumcised. Then in verse 10, Peter turns the table, actually, on these people who are claiming this. He draws an inference. Notice he says, therefore, in verse 10... And this, this inference indicts those who tried to force the Gentiles to be circumcised and to submit to the regulations of the Mosaic law. Look at verse 10 again. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? That's not a good phrase. It's what Israel did in the wilderness. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Now, this is... Massively significant. He's saying, essentially, to tell the, the Gentiles that they have to be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic Law is, is testing God. Because God has made a choice that lends itself to the opposite conclusion. And so how is it testing God? Well, they're, they're essentially saying, Okay, this yoke that God has put off to the side now in the New Covenant, this old covenant that God has laid aside, we're going to take it back up and we're going to put it back on the next of these Gentiles. And Peter says, look, guys, be honest. We've never been able to keep this. He says, neither we nor our fathers, Abraham, Moses, they've not been able to bear this either. And so why are you testing God by putting this back on the necks of the disciples? It's too heavy for them to bear. In fact... The very basis for the Jews' salvation is not that they're Jewish, but because of the grace of Jesus. That's where he ends this thing, which they received by faith. So the basis for both Jew and Gentile is faith, and the grace of Jesus, not the obedience or their percept, their, their ability to obey or disobey the law. So what we see in this is that a level of self-righteousness is kind of crept back in, and a sort of blind hypocrisy to these Judaizers, they've never been able to keep the law or these Jewish pharisaical believers. And now they're trying to impose this thing that they've never really truly been able to keep onto Gentiles. And so Peter just sort of exposes this whole thing and says, look, you're denying the very core of the gospel. And you're about to test God and invite his judgment in so doing. And Peter silences the debate. (laughs) I love it. And his his statement actually enables the people to continue to hear what Paul and Barnabas are saying in, uh, in verse 12. And so, just real quick, before we just gloss over what Peter says here, I want us to, to look a little more carefully at this and, and some of the implications that this has for our lives. So, what do we learn about our salvation through Peter's speech? So, Peter's speaking in broad terms about salvation of Gentiles, and really about Jew and Gentile. So all of humanity, and lest we sort of think, okay, that's big picture, it's, everything he says is applicable right down to the very individual, you and I. So what does he say? Well, he says God graciously chose for us to hear the gospel in verse 7. He says that he calls the, the church to remember that it was by his mouth that God chose for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. And so, if we just apply that kind of to an individual level, whatever circumstances that led you to hearing the gospel for the first time, that's God actually appointed those circumstances for you. So, if it's a Christian family, you didn't choose to be born in that family, you didn't save your parents, you didn't save the people to save them. Like it, there, there's no, you didn't have anything to do with that. God arranged that. If your friend brought you, you know, kind of came, brought you in contact with the gospel, a teacher, a sermon. Uh, something, something online, whatever those things are, God was behind all of that, orchestrating all of that together to bring you into contact with the gospel. This is an act of sheer grace toward you. Period. Sheer grace. And this should overwhelm us, should humble us. We did nothing to deserve this. There should be no entitlement mentality in our hearts. We only did the opposite. We only deserved wrath and judgment. God simply chose to arrange our lives by his mercy, the way that he did, so that we could hear the gospel. That's just inexplicable grace. There's no, like, why did he do it? Well, because he's gracious. That's the only reason. Um, There's nothing worthy, inherently worthy in you. God is merciful, and he wants to display that mercy to you in sheer loving kindness. So he arranged the circumstances. But Peter not only says that God chose Gentiles to hear this Word, it also says He chose the Gentiles to actually believe it. Do you see that? God chose them to hear the Word, and what does it say? Say it out. To believe it. It's an easy one, okay? It's an easy one. Read and repeat, okay? To believe the Gospel. So that means God graciously chose for us to believe the Gospel, just like it says. So that means when you heard the Gospel and you recognized your sin, when you reached out in faith to Jesus, which you did, you did that. Nobody would deny that. When you rested in Him, all of that happened because God chose for it to be so. He opened your eyes, to put it another way. You didn't open them yourself. He made you alive in Christ. You didn't make yourself alive. You didn't give yourself spiritual life. He gave you new birth. You didn't give birth to yourself. Even faith, which God commands you to exercise. He commands that of you. It says here, behind the scenes, is a gracious gift from God. Again, this should humble us. But it also should encourage us. Because since our faith comes from God, He won't let it get snuffed out, come what may. Peter actually says in 1 Peter 1 that he keeps us believing. It's kind of the idea in 1 Peter 1. He keeps that faith burning because it originated with God. It was a gift from him, and he's going to keep us believing no matter what it takes. And it also fills us with confidence to get after making disciples. Hang with me here. We can share the gospel with others faithfully, knowing that God's going to grant faith as he chooses. That's his prerogative and for his purposes. It's not up to you to sort of manipulate faith in another person. By how winsome you are, how friendly you are, how this you are. I mean, yes, we should be friendly as an outflow of our love for others. But that, that, their faith isn't contingent on that. Their faith is contingent on God granting it. Per this text that we see right in front of us. We can pour into other Christians in the body knowing that God's going to strengthen them and grow them ultimately. Because he, he granted the faith and he's going to see to it that it's completed. Into perfection. So it fuels everything in the Christian life. Evangelism and discipleship and sanctification. So God graciously chose for us to believe the gospel. And then it, it says here that God testifies that He's chosen us by giving us His Holy Spirit in verse 8. God demonstrates that He chose the Gentiles, big picture, by pouring out His Spirit on them. And this means that as we see evidence of faith, however small it is, evidence of the Spirit's fruit in our lives, however small that is, we grow in full assurance that God has indeed chosen us, that we belong to Him. And when the Holy Spirit's given, He's going to guide us into all the truth and and progressively conform us to Christ. He's going to lead us out from under sin's bondage and and into freedom uh, in Christ. That's all the ministry of the Spirit in And so that brings up a really interesting question. How can the Holy Spirit reside in unholy Gentiles? Well, because God has completely cleansed our defiled hearts through faith and nothing else. Through faith and nothing else. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here in verse 9. This is a reality that we must believe whether we feel it or not. Okay? It's a reality. Realities don't change based on how you feel. When you trust Christ, which again is a gift from Him, when you trust Christ, you you are cleansed completely forever. Even though you're actually guilty, and you feel that guilt, the guilt has been removed. That's what this text says. Cleansed our hearts by faith. And do you realize that you're actually testing God if you refuse to believe this? If you believe that certain sins are too bad to be forgiven or, or sort of you can't kind of get your mind around that, you're putting God to the test. You're challenging God. You're saying that what he's done in Christ isn't enough and you've got to add a little bit more to the atonement in order for it to be enough. But very few of us would object to, to needing to earn our salvation but we all have a propensity to slip back into thinking that somehow we we earn or lose God's favor by our obedience or disobedience to Him in this Christian life. And sometimes we view God as like getting mad at us or, or punishing us or needing time away from us because we've sinned. But Peter says, man, if you have this view, it's really, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you're overburdening yourself. You're putting a yoke back on your neck when you're trying to earn God's favor in any way. Now, do we still need relational cleansing after we've come to faith in Christ? Yes, we do. We still need to confess our sins to Him, uh, to maintain our relationship in the sense of, of, of of a pure conscience, keeping short accounts of the Lord, so that we're growing and useful to Him, so that we sort of avoid that hard discipline of the Lord. You know, we want to be obedient children. And we don't want to grieve His Spirit. The Spirit is grieved when we sin. But here's the kicker. God's love for us remains unabated. Whether we feel it or not. John Owen said it, the sun keeps shining all the time. Even if there's storm clouds in front of it, and you can't see it, and you're not sure, it doesn't mean the sun's not shining. And that's like the love of God toward us. When our sin clouds that, or when circumstances seem to cloud it in our experience, the sun's still shining. Whether we feel it or not, whether we can see it or not. So how can this be? How can God's love for us and commitment to us remain unaltered by our sin or by our obedience? What brings us kind of our last thing that that we learn here, God saves us through grace and this grace was won for us by our Lord Jesus. It was won for us by our Lord Jesus. Look in verse 11, it says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. God saves us through grace, and that grace was purchased, won for us, by, by Jesus. This means that, that His grace, that's received by simple faith, is the basis of our salvation. It's the basis of our incorporation into God's people. In other words, Jesus obeyed for us, and He died for us in our place. Gospel truths we know and say, but that means he earned God's favor and he dispenses it freely to everyone who trusts in him. And that's the basis upon which God now relates to you in Christ. We didn't earn our way in. We came in on the merits of Jesus, the merits of another. God freely loved us in, so to speak. And God continues to relate to us on that basis in the Christian life. And that is the gloriously good news of the gospel. And that's, that's what Peter is, is trumpeting here. And we have more to say about this text and just how it continues to unfold. Um, so I'll just summarize it here and then we'll, we'll revisit it next week. So Peter really affirms the gospel that Paul is, is preaching here. He says it was, it was confirmed in how God saved Cornelius. The way he saved him. But now that Peter's spoken, we we clearly see that Gentile inclusion is God's will now, like in this period. But it's incredibly important that the church understand that Gentiles being saved as Gentiles is consistent with the expectations of the Old Testament. It's not something new, it's not something like brand new that's being brought about right now. It was, it's consistent with the expectations of the Old Testament. And that's going to lead to this second influential leader who vindicates Paul's gospel, which is James, the Lord's brother. And we'll look at this in depth next time. But from a summary perspective, James essentially summarizes what what Peter has said, confirms it, and then says, okay, look, guys, the Old Testament is in full continuity with this. The Old Testament predicts this. It's in agreement with what Peter has said and the experience of Paul and Barnabas and what they're doing. And it's, it's real sweet. So we'll, we'll look at that next time because we're, we're out of time. But at the end of the day, look down in verse 22, it, it says it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and to the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas essentially confirming these views to that church in Antioch. It was in massive confusion. So it led to clarity. It led to unity in the church, this threat. And so, again, we just come back to this core theme that God is in the business of using the very things which threaten to stop His mission to actually work to further it. And that's because He's completely sovereign. Nothing's outside of His control or purview. And man, He loves us. And so that should bring us tremendous, tremendous comfort. And the implications just abound. We could talk for another hour on just the implications of those of that, that one theme for us. Um, But we'll save it. We'll talk, we'll talk next time, next week. So come back next week. We'll look at James and how James really brings this thing to a close. And he offers a solution for how Gentiles should now relate to Jews. Um, which is kind of interesting. So we'll need to unpack that and, um, and then we'll, we'll move forward and see how this brings this tremendous unity in the church and, and just continue to unpack the implications out of, out of Acts 15. So I'm super, super excited to be back in the book of Acts. As uh, I'm sure you can tell, and um, sorry, that was two weeks worth of study for me, and uh, kind of just unloaded it on on you guys. But anyway, let's pray.